I believe that it's time to start. And I want to start on time because we have a lot to do. Now I have to tell you something and you're going to groan, I know. I hope you brought your syllabus with you because we're going to use it. That's right. And you're going to wish you had it if you don't. But if you don't, it's all right. You can get some, borrow somebody else's later on and catch up. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. I like to always kneel before I speak and pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you love me. You love my brothers and sisters here. And Father, today I, I just know you want to teach us some wonderful, encouraging, beautiful, hopeful things. You want to give us certainty that we can be ready to meet Jesus. So please open our hearts and minds to see your word, most of all to let Jesus in. In his name we pray, amen. I suppose my wife would be telling me, I'm up your tie. <laughs> all right, we are going to look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And uh, we're going to see Jesus here in a role that we don't discuss him very often. I am, I, most of the books which talk about Revelation 4 and 5 will tell you that this is an exciting heavenly worship scene. Which is true. But it's more than that. Revelation 4 and 5, I hope that you will see uh, after we finish with this, Revelation 4 and 5 actually describes the opening of the heavenly judgment. And there is a lot of worship going on at the time. And because of that, what Revelation says about the judgment is more than what Daniel says about it and more than what uh, Zechariah says about it. <clears throat> And more than what Malachi and Joel say about it. And so we're going to see something in Revelation that brings Jesus into the picture in a fabulous way. I think you're going to be really excited about it. I wonder if someone could find some water for me. I think I'm going to end up needing some after, uh, after all. All right. I have printed out Revelation chapter 4 for you here. However, you can certainly read it from your Bible too. I have it here in the Good News American Bible Society version, which is actually a rather good translation, although at times I find myself missing the King James wording. But it's so easy to read. So uh, Now, I want you to understand that as we go through this, I'm not just teaching you this chapter. I'm also teaching you how to interpret the book of Revelation. In other words, how to study your Bible when you're studying the apocalyptic prophecy of Revelation. So let's start with verse 1. At this point, this is the way mine reads, at this point I had another vision, and I saw an open door in heaven. Anybody have any idea where that open door might be? You know, we've only been shown, in all Scripture, we're only shown one heavenly building. Which one is that? The heavenly temple, right. That's the only one that's ever described in all Scripture is the heavenly temple. Does the heavenly temple have a door in it? It must. it must. Is that door open? Come on, Bible students. 
the way that we interpret the book of Revelation is to make every mystery, and even some things we don't initially think are mysterious, we find the answer from other scriptures, don't we? Who, who said he was the door? Jesus said he was the door, right. But he said he was the door of the sheepfold. Does that have anything to do with the sanctuary? Oh, it does, doesn't it? Because the most holy place is actually the sheepfold we all want to get into, isn't it? Yes, it is. So who's the door? He says that in John chapter 10, doesn't he? Might, might want to write that in your margin there. And we read in Hebrews that the door is, it has been opened. Who, who, how did the door get open? If Jesus is the door, how did it get open? Do you remember in Matthew when Jesus died? What happened to the door? The curtain was split from top to bottom and the door was thrown wide open. This is the door between the holy place and the most holy place. It was opened when Jesus died because Jesus is the door. And when he was torn and broken, the opening was made. Does that make sense? Because it was through the death of Jesus Christ that the way was open for us to enter into the immediate presence of the Father, isn't it? Jesus reconciled us to the Father by his death. The wall of partitions, Paul says, was broken down. We are now reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, even if we've never given our hearts to Jesus. We have already been reconciled to God. That's why every one of us can approach the throne of God with boldness. Because we've already been reconciled by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes? Isn't that neat? That's so wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. And Jesus is all of them. But we're looking particularly at the door in heaven because remember, there's no courtyard in the heavenly sanctuary. The courtyard is earth. And then the main door into the sanctuary is not being discussed here as, uh, as we uh, shall see because in Revelation chapter 1, we start out seeing Jesus where? In the holy place, don't we? Among the seven candlesticks. Where were the seven candlesticks? In the holy place. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus has moved. Jesus has moved. And in Revelation chapter 4, we see him in the throne room where the four beasts are and so forth. So uh, this is the door into the most holy place of the heavenly temple, and it's open. And it's been open. In fact, that's the same one that was torn when Jesus died. It was the one, because the outer door, in Jesus' day, the outer door was a, was a door like we would have on hinges. But it was the inner door that was a curtain that could be torn between the holy and the most holy. So Jesus is the door. And Jesus, so you remember what the, what the word Laodicea means? Means that, no, that's, that's their condition. But the Greek word Laodicea means the people who are judged. Or it can also mean the people who are justified. Uh, this, this, he says, now after this, let's read this verse again. At this point, I had another vision and saw an open door in heaven and the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking to me before. By the way, whose voice is that? Revelation chapter 1. Whose voice sounds like a trumpet? Jesus' voice. That's right. So Jesus is actually inviting him through the door, which I had heard speaking to me before. He said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. So he's just shown in the seven churches. He's taken them all the way to the church, which is the judged church. The Laodicean church, in other words, is basically synchronous with the heavenly judgment. When did the heavenly judgment begin, according to Daniel 8, 14? 18, You've got to compare that, of course, to Daniel 9. And you just get that date. Uh, 2,300 days, years. Then will the sanctuary be cleansed? 
So the heavenly sanctuary judgment began in 1844. So we're looking now, if, if you want to put a date next to the scripture in your Bible, this verse 1 is 1844, and we're looking into the most holy place at the time of Laodicea, when the people are judged. At once the Spirit took control of me, verse 2 says, and there in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it. Oh, have we seen this anyplace else? A throne put in place and someone sitting on it. Where? Daniel 7. Every verse in Revelation is explained by other verses elsewhere in the Bible. This verse is explained by Daniel 7, where we see a throne and someone sitting on it. By the way, in Daniel 7, who's sitting on it? The Ancient of Days is sitting on it. That's right, that's right. And he describes the one sitting on it in verse 3 here. His face gleamed like such precious stones as jasper and carnelian. And all around the throne there was a rainbow, the cover, color of an emerald. Does that mean that this rainbow only has one color? Only one refraction of light? It's all green? I don't know. Kind of sounds like it in this verse. Some of these things we, we can't explain anything more because we'll have to go there and see before we can tell. Verse 4, in a circle around the throne were 24 other thrones. Now, Daniel doesn't tell us that, does he? He doesn't tell us there were 24 other thrones. But John tells us that. By the way, John was the last author of Scripture. He wrote the last gospel. He wrote the last epistles. And he wrote the last prophecy. Why do you think God let John be the last author of Scripture? Because John understood the love of God. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Didn't he love all the others too? Yeah, but you see, John understood the love. That's why he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. John understood and opened himself up to the love of God. And so Jesus let John be the one to put the capstone on the entire Bible. Because John had the clearest view of the character of God of any Bible authors. And so John gives us the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what this book is called? Yeah. Uh, you're going to see a revelation of Jesus Christ. I hope you're excited about Jesus. Because if you're excited about Jesus already, it's going to be hard for you to keep your feet on the ground after we're done today. Jesus is so awesome. All right. So we've got 24 other thrones, and we've got 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold sitting on those thrones. Where do those 24 elders come from? You've all studied this before, right? The 24 elders, according to Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, are people who have been redeemed from earth. Wow. How did they get there? There was a small resurrection at Jesus' uh, ascension, wasn't there? I mean, before that, there was a resurrection at Jesus' at resurrection, and, uh, or even at the time of his death. And then there was um, a, a small ascension with him. He took the first fruits, didn't he? Could the 24 elders have been the first roots? Or maybe at least they were part of the first roots that he took with him? I don't see any other logical answer if they're human beings. Who are they? Maybe one of them is Daniel. We don't know. We? We're not given the names of them. Maybe one of them is Job. Wouldn't he make a great jurist in the heavenly judgment? Oh, I, I just love this. to speculate who they might be. But we don't know. We don't know. It could have been Enoch. Yeah, he was there already a long time. Who knows? All right. By the way, we're all clear on that, aren't we? Nobody goes to heaven without resurrection, except the ones who never die. Right? All right. 
Now, verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. Have, have we ever been told that we're going to go stand on the sea of glass? That means we're going to be standing all around the throne of God. Yeah. Surrounding the throne on each of its sides were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and behind. Some people think that's gross. God never made anything ugly. Satan has made a lot of things ugly. God doesn't make ugly things. So I'm sure that even though they have eyes all over, that's fine. It's great. <laughs> it's probably better than fine. It's probably absolutely stunning, gorgeous. Anyway, who else talks about these four living creatures in great detail? Ezekiel, chapters 1 and 10. In fact, Ezekiel tells us things about them that uh, John doesn't even tell us. Ezekiel tells us, see, John only sees them from one angle, but Ezekiel sees them moving all around, doesn't he? Ezekiel says they move like lightning. He says they never turn. Whatever direction they go, they're going straight forward. Well, how can anybody be going straight forward no matter whatever direction they go? Only if you had faces on all four sides, right? Which they do. They each have all four faces. John mentions the four faces, but he only sees each one with one because he's looking from one angle. They each have all four faces. I, I'm rather glad that I don't you know, have a face over here, a face over here. You know? I've occasionally been called two-faced. So imagine being four-faced. It would really be something, wouldn't it? Anyway, that's beautiful too. Don't doubt it. That is going to be stunningly beautiful. All right? You're going to look at them and you're going to think, wow, that is one of God's greatest marvels. All right. Then uh, it says that they, were, uh, that they were singing day and night in verse 8. I won't go into the kinds of creatures that they are. You already know. And they, they never stopped singing. Now, how could they do anything else if all they were doing was singing? Oh, wait a minute. They have four faces. Which means they have to have four mouths, doesn't it? So they could be singing all the time and doing several other things as well. They go on singing all the time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was, who is, and who is to come. You know what's astonishing is Satan was one of these at one time. He stopped saying holy, holy, holy. He started looking at himself. He was the first narcissist. He started falling in love with his own beauty. He thought he could be as good, at least as good as Jesus, the second person of Godhead. He could at least be as high as that. You know, He wants to be Mikael, like the Most High. There's only one of those, isn't there? Who is and who was and who is to come. So Satan has been worshipped in the guise of these four creatures. You look at the pagan gods, you'll see a god like a lion, a god like a bird, gods like men, you'll see gods like oxen or bulls. Satan has used these forms of himself, his cherubic forms, and even his hoofs. Do the cherubs have hoofs? Yes, they do. These four living creatures have hoofs. And uh, so he's used those forms uh, as pagan god-like uh, uh, to be worshipped in those forms, as well as the serpent form, which he's invented for himself. Verse 9, the four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever. And when they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they throw their crowns down in front of the throne and they say, Oh, Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Why do they throw their thrones off, uh, their crowns off? They say you are worthy. What does that imply? We're not worthy. We don't have any right to wear these crowns. You have the right to wear crowns. We are just redeemed. 
Now, God must have an awesome crown sorting, automatic crown sorting device. Because we're told that we're all going to throw our crowns up someday. There's going to be hundreds and millions of crowns flying at Jesus' feet. And they're going to land there in a great glittering heap. They're going to be like boomerang crowns. And at a certain time, they're going to come back to us. Jesus wants us to wear those crowns. Are you worthy of wearing any crown? Will you ever be worthy of wearing any crown? If you are extremely righteous 10 million years from now, will that be your righteousness? It'll still be Jesus' righteousness. That's right. Always only Jesus'. Everything comes from Him. Amen? Okay. Oh, I want to talk about that so bad, but we'll go on. And so they say, you are worthy. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. It was covered with writing on both sides and was sealed with seven seals. So here we see uh, the equivalent of a book. Daniel says book. Revelation says scroll. But it's a sevenfold scroll, isn't it? It has seven parts. Daniel says books. The books need to be opened in Daniel's judgment, don't they? In Revelation 5, do the, does the book need to be opened? Apparently it does, because John weeps and weeps and weeps at the thought that it might not be opened. Apparently it needs to be opened real bad. Apparently the fate of the entire human race depends upon that book being opened. I wish I'd brought it with me. There's a quote from Ellen White that I didn't bring with me. It describes what's in that book. That's a scroll with a seven. She says it contains the record of God's people all the way from Adam and Eve to the end. Yeah. And you know what comes out when we see it. We see the four horsemen, don't we, in their conditions. And you can find the category of every human being at any given time in his life in one of those four horsemen. The white, the red, that's pure, right? The red, sinful, right? The black, mournful, discouraged, depressed. And the greenish, pale one with the grave chasing it and being ridden by death. That's right on the verge, on the brink of complete spiritual death. So we see the four conditions of every Christian or person who's claimed to follow God in those four horsemen. But I'm getting away from myself. All right? Um, every verse in Revelation, you can spend, you can spend lots of time. I, I thought that I, I was detailed. When I do a Revelation study, it usually takes a whole year. And we go verse by verse, and we often don't get through more than three or four verses in a, in a class. But I just heard about a lady who's been studying the book of Revelation. She's only halfway through, and she's already been on it for five years. So she beats it all, beats it all. That's down in the Los Angeles area. But you really can, because, folks, this is one of the evidences that Revelation is so inspired by God. Virtually every phrase in the book of Revelation is taken from somewhere else in the Bible. Virtually every friend. Nobody could have had the whole Bible well enough memorized and organized in their mind to write it all down while he was a prisoner on an island out in the Aegean uh, and get all those phrases from the rest of the Bible. It had to be the Holy Spirit that did that. The Revelation is the capstone of the whole Bible. It's so astonishing. Now, you can find those phrases in the passages from which they come because of the wonderful tool we have available to us now, which is called computer-aided Bible study. And you can do your search thing, and you can look up those words and those phrases, and you can find where they come from in the original. Of course, if you have a really good Bible with a thick marginal reading, it'll give you a lot of them right up front. I really like that, what passages they come from. But anyway, it's, it's not that hard to study Revelation. Folks, how do we interpret Revelation? Never, ever, ever speculate at a meaning that is important in any way. 
we just made some speculations about the 24 elders, or we made some speculations. But, but those are not doctrinal or issues of salvation in any way, are they? But, folks, these issues, we don't need any speculation anyway, because there's always an answer somewhere in Scripture. There's a key somewhere. Uh, by the way, you'd be shocked how many of the prophetic keys are in the book of Psalms. You know, the book of Psalms is, is highly... Um, I sure hope you're not about to show me the 20-minute page. The book of Psalms, <laughs> the book of Psalms is, is an extremely uh, 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 symbolic book, isn't it? Because in poetic language, you're always using symbols for things. And he has that double thing where he'll say it in plain English, and then he'll put a symbolic version. You know how Hebrew poetry is. They repeat everything twice. And so you can figure out what the symbols mean right there in, in, in the passages in Psalms. You can go back and apply that to the book of Revelation. The symbols are, are there somewhere else in Bible. It's so beautiful. All right. So we see this one sitting on the throne having a book. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel who announced in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Heaven just loves ceremony. Don't tell me they didn't know who was worthy. But in heaven, they're always having these great ceremonies, you know. It's like when Jesus comes back from his resurrection and he comes up to the gates of the city. Who is this king of, you know, king of glory? Let's open the gates so the king of glory can come. Who is the king of glory? You know, they, they, they love to make a big, big protocol out of it. I can hardly wait for heaven. You know, we're going to be, get to be there a thousand years learning the protocol of the universe. And then the rest of the universe, the rest of eternity, we get to be God's ambassadors to the universe. I can hardly wait for that. Boy, are we going to have fun. Anyway, we could, we could but we don't have time. <laughs> All right, verse 3. But there was, a, I saw a mighty angel. Oh, yes. There was one in heaven, there was no one in heaven or on earth or in the world below who could open the scroll and look inside of it. All right, so in heaven, that's all the people who have been resurrected and taken to heaven. That's on the earth, uh, living on the earth at that time. And below, of course, means the people who are in their graves. None of those three categories were worthy to open the book. So John cried bitterly because no one could be found, verse 4, who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. So we can assume that since John cried bitterly, the Holy Spirit brought him to those bitter tears. Can we assume that? He's in vision here, right? He's in vision. He's in a highly spiritual. So that he's, he's brought to bitter tears through the Holy Spirit in vision because God wants to communicate to us that the opening of this book is essential to our salvation. How can the opening of a book in heaven be essential to our salvation? Folks, folks, this should give us a clue right now to this great important thing I'm going to tell you before we're all done here. Because the judgment is essential to our salvation. See, many Christians don't know that. In fact, hardly any Christians know that. They think that everything essential to our salvation was finished at the cross. No, no, no. The judgment is essential to our salvation. Why? Because God has to decide if we're worthy or not? No, nobody's worthy. The judgment's not about deciding if anybody's worthy. Nobody's worthy. There's got to be a bigger, better reason than that. We're going to see it, folks. Who can open this book and what this person does when the, with the book once he opens it? Oh, I can't wait to share this with you. All right. So verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, don't cry. That's sweet. Those elders are such nice guys. You know they have to be. They're just like Jesus. Anybody who goes to heaven is just like Jesus, right? Don't cry. He feels so sorry for John crying there. Makes you wonder if John was there literally, doesn't it? Look. The lion from Judah's tribe, the great descendant of David, has won the victory. He can break the seven seals and open the scroll. David was a symbol of whom? Was David a symbol of Jesus? 
Oh yeah, read those Psalms. Isn't that great how David describes the whole crucifixion, the judgment and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in the Psalms as if it was his own experience? It's so amazing. David goes through all those things. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Anyway, can't spend more time with that. <laughs> uh, you can even see, oh, I want to talk about this. I don't dare talk about this. Remember David's son, Absalom? He's such a perfect fit for Satan. And if you want to know how Jesus feels about Satan, you can just see how David felt about Absalom. Oh, it's just amazing. Oh, please. Not amazing. That's ridiculous. This guy is trying to be my friend. He smiles, but. All right. So he turns around to see the lion, and in verse 6, instead he sees what? A lamb. John says, behold the John the Baptist said that, right? Behold the lamb. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. All right. And, and, but look at this. This is a lamb that appeared to have been killed. As he looks at this lamb, it appears to have just been sacrificed. Remember, we're in the sanctuary, so this is a sacrificial lamb. He looks at the lamb in the middle of the throne, appearing to have just been sacrificed. You know what happens when the lamb has just been sacrificed? Lots of blood comes out. Folks, this is the most glorious thing. As the judgment is opening, we see the one alone who is worthy to do the judging. Doesn't Jesus say all judgment is given to the Son? You know, John chapter 5. The Lamb, we see him not standing there in some judgment garment, some big old black robe with a gavel, you know. No, 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 no. We see him as a humble, meek lamb. Not even as a lion. He's described as a lion because he won the victory, and that's a great description. But we don't even see him as a lion. We see him as a meek, humble, spotless, white lamb, just exploding with blood in the middle of God's throne. Now, why is that so wonderful? Because it means, folks, get this, it means there is still cleansing during the judgment. You know that's true. Look at the Yom Kippur judgment. Was there cleansing during the judgment? Was Yom Kippur a symbol of the heavenly judgment? Was it? Yeah, it's 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Aren't we meant to put the Yom Kippur Jewish symbol with the heavenly judgment? Aren't we? Isn't that what the Bible wants us to do? Isn't Leviticus 23 really telling us about the heavenly judgment in type? What happened on Yom Kippur? Was the people's worthiness evaluated? No! They were cleansed. Leviticus 16, they were cleansed. We'll look at it in a minute. It's right here in your syllabus. All right, so folks, here's the good news. I don't think anybody goes to the judgment. I used to think this, oh no, what if I'm not holy by the time the judgment comes to my name? I don't think anybody's holy when the judgment comes to their name. The Apostle Paul was just about to be martyred. He said he hadn't made it yet. Didn't he? He says, I count not myself to have achieved. He says, but I'm just forgetting the things behind and pressing on because I know the crown awaits me. Now, am I saying you can't be perfect? No, not at all. Remember, the judgment finishes before Jesus comes. Is anybody going to be, who's going to meet Jesus? Are any of them going to be imperfect? After the judgment is over, no. But are they perfect before the judgment comes? 
I don't think so. You can study the Bible on your own here and see if you can find it, but I don't think so. Remember, it's the judgment that actually cleanses them. That's the final cleansing. I'm not saying they haven't been cleansed all along. Remember, if we abide in Christ, we're being constantly cleansed, aren't we? We walk in the light. We walk as He is. If we have this hope in us, we purify ourselves even as He is pure. You know the Scriptures, don't you? Jesus is cleansing us all along. But what about that final touch of perfection? Who gets that? According to the Yom Kippur ceremony in Leviticus, who gets it? Those who afflict their souls on the judgment day are the ones who get that. You know what God's going to be looking for when your name comes up in the judgment? Is your soul afflicted? Do you hate your sins? Do you long to be just like Jesus? Is he making you hate your sins more every day? Is he making you more every day want to be just like Jesus? Don't despair, folks. Even during the judgment, there's blood flowing. Lots and lots of blood. Just imagine this white lamb, and he goes to get the book out of the Father's hand. He's bleeding. Remember, he's gushing blood. What happens to the book? It gets covered with blood. Is that a bad thing? No, that's a, that's a good thing. There's lots of stuff in there that I want to have blotted out. Anything you want to have blotted out? There's so much stuff in that book I never want to see. You know, I told the Lord, I made a deal with the Lord. I don't care, Lord, if there's nothing on my page except just my name. I just don't want to have anything there that's bad. Nothing. Never want to see one bad thing. You agree with me? <laughs> you can blot out my whole history, Lord. It's all right. Just don't blot me out. That's the alternative, isn't it? It's either the record gets blotted out or you get blotted out. Oh, no, not that. Not that. I'll tell you these guys. Nothing but bad news. All right. We're going to have to rush on. We're not going to get to finish all the rest of reading this. Let's go to the interactive questions. All right. What did Jesus invite John to see and where? He invited him to see the future in heaven. Revelation 4 and verse 1. Question 2. What does Jesus mean by after this? He means after the church, churches are established. He means after the Laodicean experience begins. So we've got Revelation uh, um, 2. Excuse me. Revelation 2 and 3 which show us what comes before this judgment scene. In what building in heaven is the throne of Jesus and the Father? The heavenly temple, right? What's the verse for that? Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Are you with me? Are you keeping up with me? Question 4. What important event is introduced in these chapters? The judgment. Compare with Daniel 7, 9 and 10. By the way, I want you to see seven points of comparison between Daniel's judgment and Revelation's judgment. Look on the next page. Points of comparison. You see that in the middle of the next page? Everybody see that? Seven points. There's a throne, there are thrones put in place, number one. Number two, a glorious person sits on one of the thrones. Number three, fire proceeds from his throne. In Revelation, it's called lightning. Number four, there's 100 million plus angels present. It says 10,000 times 10,000, 1,000, 1,000 in both records. Number five, books are opened or a scroll with seven parts is opened. Number six, Jesus approaches the Father... In Daniel and Revelation, the Lamb, of course, is in the midst of the throne there. And number seven, the kingdom is received by Jesus and is given to the redeemed humans. And um, in, in, in nine, in, in Revelation, we see that Jesus uh, receives the book, which is the book of his people, and so forth. So those are the seven points of comparison. All right. I don't think very many people really realize that Revelation 4 and 5 are about the heavenly judgment. That's why I share this with you, because it tells us something so awesome about the judgment. All right, now let's go back to question five. 
What role does Jesus play in the judgment? Jesus himself is the judge. John 5, 22. Isn't it encouraging to you that we have, a, we have a bleeding lamb for our judge? Isn't that encouraging? Wow. Who is sitting on the other thrones? 24 elders, Revelation 4, verse 4. Where did the 24 elders come from? They're redeemed from the earth, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Why do the elders throw down their crowns? They feel unworthy, Revelation 4, verse 10. What do the four creatures look like? Well, you can list them there, and that's in Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Who is holding the book? The one who's on the throne, or the Father, Revelation 5, verse 1. Who alone is worthy to open the book? The lion slash lamb, which is Jesus, Revelation 5, 5, 6, and 12. Question 12. Why is Jesus only worthy to open the book of judgment? Because he has been tried and tested and overcome everything, amen? That's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We have not a high priest who cannot be what? Who cannot feel uh, our, our weaknesses, but has been, has been uh, tempted in all ways like we have and has not sinned. All right, Hebrews 13. How does Jesus save people while judging them? Ah, Malachi tells us that. Malachi. Now, I put Malachi in here so you wouldn't have to go back and look it up. If you'll go to the next page, you'll see Leviticus 16. And you'll see what I was telling you earlier about the judgment in type. It says in Leviticus 16, 30, For on that day an atonement shall be made for you to do what? To do what? To cleanse you so that you may be clean from how many of your sins? Before Jehovah, all of them. Boy, we've had so many of them, folks. All right. Now, how can we be cleansed? It should be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall do what? Afflict your souls. All right. You shall afflict your souls. That means humble yourself before God and say, I am so filthy and wretched and miserable and unworthy, and my only hope is if Jesus completely replaces me with his purity. That's my only hope. Is that still our only hope even on the judgment day? Even on the judgment day, that's still our only hope. Is this good news? Because I grew up with this idea, and believe me, it's not in the Bible. I grew up with this idea that I had to be perfect before, before the judgment came to me. And that somehow I just had to achieve that. You know, I just had to grow fast. And, and I had the idea that it would only be a few, maybe, you know, eight, like there were in the ark. who would actually make it. It would be good enough to be judged worthy on the judgment, you know. I had this story, I remember this illustration I heard from some preacher one time about this measuring rod and how the angel would stand everybody up against it and how hardly anybody would meet, you know, reach the height of the measuring rod. And I was so discouraged. I thought, what's the use of even being? You know, most of my friends left the church. Why did they leave the church? They were hearing that, that hardly anybody's going to make it. That's what, that's what we taught back in those days. You're so lucky that you guys are at most of, well, some of you are maybe my age. <laughs> Many of you didn't have to grow up in the Jurassic period. All right. <laughs> yeah, you get colder and colder, right? You can hardly get warm. <laughs> this judgment does not determine. Now, this is my own commentary. I, I beg you to test this. Never believe anything a preacher says. Test it from God's word. This judgment does not determine guilt, does not determine sinfulness or culpability. 
Remember, he says he condemns no man. Jesus says, I judge no one. In John chapter 8, he doesn't need to. We are already judged by the record of our lives. It exists, and it's a mess. Is that true? He doesn't have to judge us. What would he judge? Let's see if we can find anything good enough that can, count, that can, that can balance out their badness. What would he find? You can't balance out your badness. for Nothing you do. That's what the Jews believe, by the way. The Jews believe on Yom Kippur that God looks to see if they've done enough good deeds to balance out their bad deeds. That is pathetic. What, uh, but the Bible tells us all of our righteousness even is as filthy rags, doesn't it? All right, this judgment is for the purpose of seeing who has humbled himself and repented, re- afflicted his soul, receiving the forgiveness provided by the cross and seeking earnestly the new life created in Christ Jesus. Those will be cleansed in the judgment so that they can receive holy perfection from Jesus and be prepared to live with God forever. Now, I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I don't have time to prove it. Study it from the Bible. I believe the 144,000 are the first of the living to go through the judgment of the living. I believe that they are cleansed first, and in their cleansing, they receive the name of the Father written in their foreheads. Does that not imply that they represent His character perfectly? It does, doesn't it? Then I believe that the 144,000, according to Revelation chapter 14, preach the everlasting gospel to all the world. They are joined by everybody that receives their message as rapidly as they do. And so it grows, as it says in Revelation 7, into a numberless multitude. And John asked, where did this number multitude come, numberless multitude come from? And the angel clearly said to him, they came out of the great tribulation. Did they have to be cleansed too? They're all wearing white robes, aren't they? And carrying palm branches in their hands. So they all accept the message of the 144,000 cleansed ones, and they go through their judgment of the living. And why do they accept that message? Because it's so hopeful. Because it's all about what Jesus does for us and nothing that we do for him. Do you see it? It's all about the perfection of Jesus' righteousness. It's all about how Jesus can replace us with himself if we'll just let him. Do you know at any moment, it is our privilege at any moment to say, Jesus, right now I give you permission to replace my thoughts and feelings with yours. And every time we do that, he does it. I'm not saying that your old thoughts and feelings never come back again. They do. But you see, in 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 the judgment... He takes them away forever. I wish that Christianity was, was an immediate erasure of the flesh, but it's not. But what it is, is a moment-by-moment replacement of the flesh, which we have more and more consistently as we depend upon Jesus more and more consistently. You see it, don't you? You see it. It's so simple. It's so straight. so obvious. And it, 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 it explains our whole experience, doesn't it? Now, I want you to see Malachi, because we, we, were, we were looking for that a minute ago. On the same page we're looking at here, Malachi 3.1, then the Lord you are looking for will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus did this figuratively on earth, didn't he? What did he do to that temple? He suddenly came in and he lifted his cords and he cleansed that temple, didn't he? And he only left the pure in there. Beautiful. So, but, but that was only figurative also. This is talking about the ultimate cleansing. He will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger who you long to see will come and proclaim my covenant. But who will be able to endure the day when he comes? That's a good question, isn't it? Who can safely get through the judgment? When he comes into his temple and cleanses it, who can get through that? And the answer is very clear here. Who will be able to survive when he appears? Who? He will be like strong soap, like a fire that refines metal. So the answer is implied, isn't it? Who can endure the day of Jesus in his most holy place? The ones who are willing to be refined and washed. That's who can endure. If you come into that judgment day hating your sins more than you've ever hated them before, wanting to be like Jesus more than you've ever wanted to be like Jesus, oh, folks, 
I believe that right now is the sealing of the 144,000. Do you believe that? You know why I believe that? Because according to Revelation 7, they're sealed before the winds break loose, right? So they're sealed before any kind of troubles begin. We are so close to troubles, we can see them on the horizon. Wise men in our country can't even figure out why the troubles haven't come already. Can't, isn't that true? They don't understand. What is holding things back? Why are things still so relatively normal when everything is wrong? It's because the angels are still holding them back, waiting for those 144,000 to be sealed. Isn't that right? Many others will be sealed after that, during the tribulation, but waiting for them to be sealed before that trouble breaks out. Am I interpreting this correctly? Study it for yourself. You'll see. It all goes right down the line. So compare it with Ellen White. She says the same things. Now, in the early days, it is true, in Ellen White's earliest writings, they were of the opinion that only a few people would be saved. Well, you know, they'd come through a horrible time. And, uh, and so she describes 144,000 as the living saints. It's just that she uses all the language in that passage. Compare it carefully. She uses all the language in that passage to describe the great multitude to describe the 144,000. She does. So uh, by, her, by the logic that, that, that is imp 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 anyway, involved there in early writings, you can look it up in early writings, uh, we see then that she's speaking of both the great multitude and the 144,000. The great multitude ultimately have the same experience of the 144,000. They're not quite the same. You see, there's something special about the 144,000. Listen carefully to me. They're sealed before the troubles begin. You know what that means? They're not sealed because they're scared. They're sealed because they're in love with Jesus Christ. They're not waiting for the terror to break loose. But the, hundred, but the great multitude, the trouble's coming, and they all see it, and they say, Lord, have mercy on me. Does the Lord have mercy on people? Even if they wait until the troubles? Of course, of course he does. And so millions will be sealed then, too. I'm so looking forward to this. For years and years and years and years and years, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be among those sealed people, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. But now I know. If you want to know, study First John. It's all in First John. It's explained perfectly in 1 John how to be sealed. It's fabulous. Anyway, Malachi 2, 3, 2 says, Who will be able to endure this judgment day? Who will be able to survive when he appears? The one who's willing to be refined. Verse 3 says, He will come to judge like one who refines and purifies. Oh, boy. Don't you love a judge like that? Now, you can either be refined internally or you can be washed out. Those are the alternatives, aren't they, in the judgment? You could be washed out. But nobody comes to the judgment and says, I'm clean, keep me. Some come to the judgment unclean and longing to be clean. And they get washed. Some come to the judgment unclean and wanting to stay unclean. And they get washed out. You see it? All right, folks, I promised you a passage from 1 John. Here's one. If we live in the light, just as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. I challenge you to study what that verse means. This is the prescription for the 144,000. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And there's no truth in us. But if we confess our sins to God, he will keep his promise and do what is right. Did you ever study that? Why is it right for him to forgive us? I thought it was just merciful. It says here it's right. You know, in the King James, it says, 
He will forgive us, and he, he is right. He is, uh, how does it put it? Confessor, since he is faithful and just. What's just about forgiving us and cleansing us? It's just because Jesus has already taken the blame for all of our sins. And so justice is completely met, and it's totally just for him to forgive us. In fact, if we come seeking his forgiveness, it would be unjust for him not to forgive us. Do you see that? He has taken the blame for every sin already. I love that, don't you? Don't say, oh, please, please, please forgive me. Give me one more chance. I always hear people say, I'm so glad God is so patient. Oh, God, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. He's not going to give up on you. He's wondering if you're going to give up on him. He can forgive anything and he can cleanse everything. Just don't stop coming to him, opening your heart to him more and more, loving him more and more. Folks, people say, I can't confess that same sin again. Yes, you can. Confess it again and again and again until you're so sick of yourself and so in love with Jesus for forgiving you so many times that finally you just don't want to do it anymore. Keep going back to Jesus. There's blood enough. He died for every sin, folks. The sins we've already committed, the sins we haven't even committed yet, the blood is still there. It's all covered, folks. It's all covered. He can make you pure. Do you see why this judgment message is such good news? In Revelation chapter 14, this everlasting judgment, this, this judgment message is called the everlasting gospel. Remember? They go, the 144,000 go to preach the everlasting gospel to the whole world. And then, what does it say? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. What's the gospel about that? No, it is the gospel. Don't you see what the everlasting judgment, the everlasting gospel is in the judgment? The judgment is saying, look, poor sinner. Would you like to be ready for the soon coming Jesus? You can be. Because our judge is ready to purify us. Will you let him purify you today? On this day of judgment? Isn't that a good message? I want to be among the people who preach that message, don't you? Instead of scaring people to death that we're in the judgment hour and boy, you better live righteous because God is watching everything you do and it's all in the book of record and you're going to be in trouble if you don't live good enough. Who can live good enough? My record does nothing but condemn me. Jesus alone can live good enough. But Jesus is ready to purify us, amen? amen. Those that have this hope in them purify themselves even as he is pure. That comes from 1 John also, right? Chapter 3. Folks, Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is the judge. The judge is a bleeding lamb. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Afflict your souls. Make it your daily work. Cry out to Jesus and say, I can't live without you. Every single thing I do is polluted. You must replace me with yourself. I lay claim to Jesus right now. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we love Jesus. We're so thankful that the book of Revelation is not a sealed mystery, but it's an open book, ready for us to interpret with all the other scriptures. Father, most of all, we're thankful that Jesus himself is in the judgment, that he is the purifier, that he's the refiner, that he himself is the fiery holiness, that he himself is the fuller soap, that he himself is our righteousness. Lord, we lay claim to Jesus. I know many will not be ready for the judgment because they haven't been practicing soul affliction every day. But Lord, you're showing us that even while we love Jesus more and more, even while we let his love fill us more and more with hope and encouragement and peace, and while we trust him, the one who's begun a good work in us to finish it, Father, at the same time we abhor our old natures more and more, 
And yet we don't live in some guilty, cringing condition. No, because we are loved. We are adored. We are the treasure of our precious maker. We have hope. We have confidence. We know that you are on our side. And if God be for us, who can be against us? We thank you. Nothing can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.